Well, hi, everybody. I hope you're all doing well out there. You know, last Saturday, my wife Cheryl celebrated another anniversary of her 39th birthday. You know, when you get to be our age, you don't celebrate birthdays, but you celebrate anniversaries of your 39th birthday. And she had another one. You know, uh, since they were locked down like the rest of us, uh, her parents decided to send her a video birthday greeting uh, on their iPhone. And so here's what we got from them. Take a look at the screen. the lights. There's a round circle, white. The button to start. The to start button is the red and white. Thing. It's below. The you never see that. That's something. It's part of the camera thing. <coughs> that thing there. See? Ready? Let me see. What are you doing? I don't know. Just wish I had to drift it. Wait, who's going to put it on? <clears throat> I don't know just how he's supposed to put the video on. Okay, turn up the TV Isn't that hilarious? Uh, that's Howard and Irene Oshiro, Cheryl's parents. And they had such a difficult time figuring out, trying to figure out how to use their iPhone that they never got the greeting across. They never said, happy birthday, Cheryl. I guess the moral of the story is that, first of all, iPhones really don't live up to the hype and they should get a Samsung instead. Second, in all seriousness, they probably could have benefited from a little bit of instruction. Uh, if someone just taught them how to use the video function on their iPhone, they probably would have been able to pull it off. But because of the lockdown, no one was there to show them, and so this is what we got. Well, today, we're kicking off a brand new series on, the, uh, on, on a passage in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that's come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be at uh, today. 
Now, most of your Bibles will have a heading uh, about halfway down the page that says the Lord's Prayer. It's titled the Lord's Prayer. It, this is how it looks in the Bible gateway. Now, this heading, like the one above it, which says giving to the needy, is not part of Scripture. It is uh, not in the original Greek manuscript. These headings were placed there by the editors of the various translations, including the ESV, the English Standard Version. And here in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer uh, comes under this heading, and it is only five verses long. Now, the Lord's Prayer also appears uh, one other time in scriptures in Luke chapter 11, and you don't need, I'm not going to put that up, well, uh, you don't have to look at it, I'm going to put this up here for you, but in Luke 11, the, the Lord's Prayer is only three verses long, this is it right here, and uh, there's a very significant statement in Luke's account that doesn't appear in Matthew's account, and it's found in verse 1, and here's what it says. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said that to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And you can stop there. So the setting of the Lord's prayer is that Jesus had just finished praying. His disciples probably were in the vicinity, may have seen him pray, and we, and we don't know that for sure because it doesn't tell us. And then one of his disciples, and we don't know which one because, again, it doesn't tell us, asked him to teach them how to pray, All right? So it is this statement in Luke 11 uh, that does not appear in Matthew's account. Uh, this is important because this is why, this statement is why Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer in the first place, because they wanted to be taught. Granted, the disciples knew something about prayer. After all, they were Jews and they grew up in a culture of prayer, and then they saw Jesus prayed, and he prayed in a way that was vastly different from what they were accustomed to, and so one of his disciples asked him, uh, teach us how to pray. They knew uh, that they could benefit from in some instruction, some teaching, and I get that because for the first 21 years of my life, I grew up in a Buddhist home, and I actually prayed, uh, and I would actually fold my hands, and I would bow my head, and I would place some beads around my hand, and I would pray. And the prayer uh, consisted of repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. And it was this phrase right here, Namu Amidabutsu, Namu Amidabutsu. Now, I had no idea what I was saying, except I knew that I was praying because I bowed my head, I clasped my hands, and I had beads around it. And I would repeat this phrase over and over and over again because that's what I saw my parents do. And this was prayer to me. And by the way, I looked up the phrase the other day and actually means something. It means, I take refuge in Buddha. Uh, I take refuge in Buddha. It can also mean, hail Buddha. Now, when I found this out the other day, it just blew me away because I had no idea that that's what I was praying. You know, when I became a Christian at the age of 21, I had to relearn how to pray. Because in the Christian faith, prayer is not or chanting or repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. Prayer is simply talking to Almighty God. It is talking to Almighty God. And you can talk to Him with your eyes closed or with your heads bowed or with your eyes open. You can talk to Him while you're kneeling or while you're standing or while you're walking. You can talk to God in church or outside of church. You can talk to Him in the outdoors. You can talk to Him at home or at work or at school 
or in the car, in the shower, at the beach. You can talk to God wherever you're at. And I had to relearn how to pray. And so did the disciples. And that's why one of them asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And that's how we got the Lord's Prayer. All right, so for the next month or so, we're going to unpack this amazing prayer. And hopefully by the end of it, you'll get a good idea how to pray and what to pray for. So again, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 6. You can also open up our South Bay Community Church app. uh, And you can get that from the Play Store. Do it right now. And I want to encourage you to invite your friends and family to join in. Watch our messages. Send them the link if, if you think that they might benefit from knowing how to pray. All right, so speaking of prayer, let me open up our time in a word of prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today. All right, so let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, it is, uh, it is so good to be here today. And I thank you so much for church. And it, and it just hurts us so much to think that we're still not able to meet together, but I'm thankful for the opportunity, the, uh, the ability to come into to the homes of, of our church members and even folks outside uh, and, and to speak to them and to teach them today about what Jesus taught us about prayer. And Lord, I ask you with all my heart that you would help me to communicate uh, what it is that you taught us, help me to do it and in an accurate way, in a, in a clear way, so that we would all know um, exactly how it is that you want us to pray. I pray that you would bless each person uh, who hears my voice today. Bless them with your presence. Bless them with your, your, uh, your power. Bless them uh, today as they hear from you. I pray that they would hear from you. So thank you, Father. We commit our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me begin by reading the Lord's Prayer to you out of Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. All right, again, in response to a disciple's request to teach them how to pray, Matthew 6, 9 says this, Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's it. That's the Lord's Prayer. Now, today, we're only going to cover one verse, the first verse, verse 9, since this is just the first message. And and since it's only the first message, I want to just give you a few general observations. For those of you who are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, you might have noticed something lacking, something wanting, something missing. It's as if it didn't sound complete and right. And that's because the closing that we're so familiar to hearing is not in this particular passage. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's not there, right? And the reason it's not there in the ESV translation is because the sentence does not appear in any of the original Greek manuscripts from which the Bibles were translated from. And so ESV translators left it out. The NIV translators also left it out. So it begs the question, well, where did this last sentence come from? Well, it came from the King James Version translation, which was published in the year 1611. 1611, and here it is. I'll put it up here for you, and there you see it right there. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
Now, the reason it's there in the King James translation is because the King James translation was based on the Greek New Testament published about 100 years earlier called the Textus Receptus. The Textus Receptus was written by a Dutch scholar named Erasmus, and he was the one who put it into the Textus Eruptus, uh, Receptus, and it has been with us ever since. So even though... Uh, even though we recite the Lord's Prayer uh, with the last sentence, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, you need to know that it's not to be found in Scripture. Now go back to verse 9. Jesus opens the Lord's Prayer by saying, pray then like this. Okay, pray then like this. You can stop right there. You underline then like this. Those three words, then like this, would be the two Greek words, hutos uh, un. Hutos un would be the Greek words. There are two words. It looks like this. And it means along these lines. Along these lines. Hutos un doesn't mean exactly like this. It means along these lines. And so Jesus said, pray along these lines. He didn't say pray exactly like this. I hope you see the distinction. And that's very important. Uh, it's an important distinction because there are a lot of churches who insist on praying the Lord's Prayer at every one of their gatherings because they argue that Jesus said that we are to pray the Lord's Prayer. Well, he didn't say that. He didn't say pray exactly like this. He said pray along these lines. Let me give you some examples. There are dozens of prayers in the New Testament, dozens of them. Yet there isn't a single prayer in the New Testament, a single instance where Paul or Peter or anybody else ever prayed the Lord's Prayer recorded in the New Testament. So what we have in the Lord's Prayer is a template. It is a, it is a uh, framework. It is an outline for prayer. You can write that one down. The Lord's Prayer is a template, a guideline uh, for how we ought to pray. Now, the first thing Jesus told us here is who to pray to. Who to pray to, and that's our Heavenly Father. Now, you would think that this is a no-brainer, but apparently it's not. You know, on Thursday, a group uh, calling itself the Higher Committee for Human Fraternity, uh, spearheaded by the Pope, uh, that would be these folks right here in this photo, led the world in what they referred to as a global day of prayer in which they called on people from all religions and all faiths, Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs and Shinto to come together to pray for the end of the coronavirus. They described it as the largest gathering of humanity ever. And it didn't matter to them who they prayed to or who you prayed to as long as you prayed. And you can tell by this photo, this is a very eclectic group of folks. Well, the first thing Jesus said about prayer is that, is that it does matter who you pray to. He said, pray to your Father in heaven. Okay, write that one down. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that prayer is directed at the Father. In Matthew 6, 9, circle the word Father. Jesus was breaking brand new ground here with this statement because the Jews never addressed God as their Father. Years ago, uh, there was a German scholar named uh, Joachim Jeremias conducted an extensive, exhaustive study on this subject. He couldn't find a single instance where in Jewish literature, in the Old Testament scriptures, in the Talmud, where a Jew ever addressed God as Father. Now, it's true that there are some Old Testament scriptures where God is depicted as 
the father of Israel in Hosea 11, 1, for example, but it was never, it was unheard of for a Jew uh, to address God as father until Jesus came onto the scene and he addressed God as his father. In fact, in the four gospels, Jesus referred to God as his father 165 times. The Greek word for father is the word uh, pater. It's where we get the word paternity. Pater refers to one who imparts life. He is one who gives life. And that's what a father does. He gives us life. So write this one down. Our father gives life. Our father gives life. And because he gives life to every man, woman, and child, there is a sense in which God is father to all. He's father to everyone. And we all come from the same, uh, from the first man, Adam. We all come from the first, man, first woman, Eve. We're all created in God's image. Proverbs 22, 2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. God made everyone. He's the maker of us all. Therefore, we are all same in his eyes. We are all the same in his eyes. Romans 2, 11 says, For God shows no partiality. Acts 10, 34 says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And so what we see in scripture is that God regards everyone the same. Now, so in a sense, we are all his children. He guards, he does, God does not discriminate. He, he does not have any prejudice. And that's why it breaks his heart when we do, when we do treat others differently, when we do discriminate. You know, as you may have uh, heard recently, there's been a dramatic uptick in the number of hate crimes uh, perpetrated against Asian Americans because of the coronavirus. Recently, I cautioned my own daughters that if they go out, they should not only be careful because of COVID-19, but they should also be aware that there are haters out there uh, who will hate them simply because of their uh, nationality or their race. Uh, Prejudice is something my, my own parents were familiar with. They and their families were incarcerated uh, in relocation camps during World War II simply because of their Japanese heritage. And I've also been on the receiving end of prejudice, though uh, to a much lesser extent. Uh, much of it, uh, I would add, uh, came from people who were, not, uh, who, who were not white. So not to downplay my family's experience, um, I, think, I think it pales in comparison to the racism that Af- African Americans have endured in our nation for for 200 years. Today, my heart aches uh, for the family of Ahmad uh, Arbery, who was uh, murdered, presumably because he was black, and I have to say presumably because the investigation is still ongoing. And my heart also hurts for the millions of African Americans who experience prejudice on a, on a regular, almost daily basis, and whose hearts have been, who are, whose hearts are pierced every single time an African-American is assaulted or murdered because of the color of their skin. Now, what we've known for a long time is that racism is systemic. It, it is pervasive. It is structural. It is everywhere. It is in the halls of government. It is in the boardrooms of America's largest corporations and smallest corporations. It is found in sports and entertainment. It is found in our schools and universities. It is found in manufacturing and retail. It's even found in churches. And racism's unholy companion is injustice. Wherever there is racism, there is injustice. For that matter, wherever you find corruption, there is injustice. Wherever you find oppression, there is injustice. One enables the other. 
And the reason why racism and oppression and corruption and injustice are systemic and structural and pervasive is because evil is systemic and structural and pervasive. Sin has infected the DNA of every man, woman, and child on earth. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. You see, the scriptures are very clear. Man's heart is desperately sick. It is full of evil and madness. And the only cure for man's wicked heart is a new heart. And the only one who can give man a new heart is Jesus. He is the only real hope for mankind. And I believe that there are two things that the church can do in the face of such evil. And the first is to love each other deeply. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, we must counter hate with love. It's got to begin with us here in the church. We must counter hate with love. And, and we are not just to love each other, but we are to love people who are not like us. We are to love people uh, whose skin color is different from ours. We are to love people whose life stage is different from ours. We are to love people whose gender is different from ours. We are to love people whose culture and nationality are different from ours. We are to love one another. We must counter hate with love and we are to love each other deeply. Second, we must, I believe what we must do is redouble our efforts to tell people about Jesus, that he loves them, that he can give them a new heart because he is our only hope. And so we must proclaim the gospel louder and clearer than we ever have before. Finally, I just need to say this. While we must speak against racism and injustice, the sad truth is it will always be with us. It will always be with us and it will never go away until Jesus comes. And when he comes, sin will finally be done away with and justice will at long last be served. You know, during this lockdown, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos. My favorite YouTube channel is SBCC Live. You should go there and subscribe. But one of my favorite YouTubers is a guy named Zach King. And I don't even know quite how to describe what he does, but it is pretty cool. Well, after Zach got married to Rachel, uh, they, got, they, they made a commitment to become foster parents to help care for kids in the L.A. County foster care system. But their lives kept getting disrupted with one thing after the other. I want you to take a look at this video. Hey, I'm Zach. And I'm Rachel. And we are applying to be on The Amazing Race. I mean, we want to have a big family, both biological and through adoption. And this is kind of our last, like, big trip. This was our audition video for The Amazing Race. And to our surprise, we were accepted to be a part of the TV show. But before we left, Rachel and I made a vow to each other that when we got back, we would actually open up that empty room in our home for a foster placement. Soon after, we were racing around the world competing for a million dollars on this reality TV show. I won't give you any spoilers, but I will tell you that when we got back, we stuck to our word and we went through the foster training. And the same day that we finished our certification process, we got a call for our first placement. 
Unlike having a biological child where you have nine months to mentally prepare and get yourself ready to be a parent, foster placements start with that phone call, usually information like the child's name, age, and any known backstory. I still remember the nervous feeling I had in my stomach walking down the dark alley with our empty car seat in hand, ready to meet and pick up our first kiddo. I had never changed a poopy diaper or swaddled or even fed a baby before. What had we signed up for? But the moment I saw his face, all those thoughts went out the window. He was brilliant and beautiful, and we were now a family of three. And we did all the stuff regular families do. Morning walks, strolls at the beach, dinner in the park, extra cups of coffee. And we put all of our love into this little guy for six months, and then we got a call that he was going home. We were, on the one hand, joyful that he could go back to a healed family, but we were sure going to miss him. And what happened that same week, some call destiny, fate, I call God, another kiddo was born who we had yet to meet. His name was Mason. He stayed in the hospital for the first month of his life because he was born prematurely, and we got to meet him when he was seven weeks old. I took this video the very first time I met Mason. My hand was almost bigger than his entire body. But boy, did he grow up quick. Look at that little face. How can you not love that little Asian face? Oh. <laughs> and before we knew it, he was walking. He was full of energy and life. We had our hands full. And that's when everything changed. Your shirt. This little pumpkin is gonna be a big brother? What? I'm pregnant. What? Oh my gosh! <laughs> Those nine months flew by. This is my first time holding him. This is my biological son, Liam, who quickly bonded with his older brother, a brother who was about to stay in our family forever. Mason, tomorrow you're gonna be adopted. I am outside a courthouse. It's gonna be one of the most emotional days of my life. Mason is officially adopted! Family looks different for everybody in the world. I like how Mother Teresa once put it. To change the world, go home and love your family. I don't know exactly what my family's gonna look like in the future, but I do have a feeling this is just the beginning. sweet. On April the 18th, 2019, Mason became a king. And when he did, it came with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of being a king. 
You see, the second reason why we can call God our Father is because He really is our Father, and we really are His children. And the way we become God's children is through adoption. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, scriptures say that we are adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. And the Greek word for adoption signifies a new family relationship with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities that go with it. So write this one down. Our Father adopts us. He adopts us into His family. And when we are adopted into His family, it comes with all the rights, responsibilities, and privileges of being a child of God. And, and that means we belong to Him. It means that He knew you even before you were conceived. It means He knit you together in your mother's womb. It means that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It means that all your days are written in His book. And he knows when you sit down and when you rise up. And he's familiar with all your ways. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He, his thoughts toward you are countless as the sand on the seashore. It means that you are his treasured possession. And you are his workmanship. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And he rejoices over you with singing. And he comforts you in all your troubles. He walks with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. He is near you even when you are brokenhearted and he has inscribed your name on the palm of his hands. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing and even to your old age, he will carry you and so much more. The implications of adoption are staggering. They are staggering for anyone who is a child of God. And the implication is also that God is not everyone's father. God is not everyone's father. It is true that there is a sense in which God is a father to us all, but there is a stronger sense that God is father only to those he has adopted into his family. In John chapter 8, Jesus castigated the Pharisees and the scribes who were the religious leaders of his day by saying this in John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, Jesus told them that God was not their father, that the devil was. And so there's a sense, a great sense in which we are, not everyone is a uh, child of God, and God is not a father to everyone. Pastor John MacArthur put it this way. He said, quote, he is only the father of those who are his children, who possess his life, which is granted only through faith in his son. And if that's you, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then God is indeed your father. He is your father and you are his child. And you have been gifted with an intimacy and a closeness with God that is unparalleled in this universe. There's one other thing that I want to point out to you in verse 9. And it's the phrase, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Take a look at it. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed in the Greek is the word hagiazo, and it means to sanctify or to treat as holy. 
Well, that begs the question, well, how do you, how do you treat God as holy? Well, in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, Moses said this to Aaron. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. There's that word. Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In this passage, Moses makes a direct connection, a link between God's sanctification and holiness and God's glory. Pastor John Piper said that this passage appears to show that God's holiness and him being glorified are virtually the same things. And thus Piper concludes that when we pray, hallowed be your name, what we're really saying is glorified be your name. May you be glorified. In other words, when you pray, remember that it's not about you, it's about God. Prayer is about God's glory, not about getting what we want. And that's your final point. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that prayer is all about God and is not about us. And you're going to see this all throughout the, the Lord's Prayer, that it is all about Him and not about us. Yet, how often have, have we prayed, have you prayed um, something about, God, give me this, or God, I need this. How often have we prayed when it's all about us? It's all about our needs. It's all about our requests. It's all about our wants, as, to being, as opposed to being all about God's glory. When King Jehoshaphat learned that his nation was about to be attacked by all these enemies, the scriptures tell us that he declared, that he declared a national fast, gathered all his people together to pray. And I want you to see the first thing that he prayed, Second Chronicles 20, verse 5 and 6. The first thing that Jehoshaphat prayed is this here. He stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to stand, withstand you. Jehoshaphat began his prayer not by not by lamenting before God. Oh God, what are we going to do? Oh God, help us. Oh God, protect us. Instead, he began his prayer by proclaiming the excellencies of God. God, there is no one like you. God, there was no one more powerful, you, more, more powerful than you are. He made it all about God. You see, prayer is not about us getting from God something that we want. Prayer is all about seeking to glorify God and lift him up. It is about putting his majesty uh, and greatness on display. Well, let me close with this. As you know, I'm a Star Wars fan. And uh, spoiler alert here. In, in the movie, The Force Awakens, if you haven't seen it by now, shame on you, uh, Kylo Ren kills his father, Han Solo. A writer named Ian uh, Kroshner rewrote the dialogue that father and son had right before son killed father. And he did it in Shakespearean English. And I want you to listen to how he rendered that tragic scene. Han, come, return unto thy home. We miss thy gentle presence in our lives. Tis not too late. Tis never too late, my son. Kylo, I do confess that I am torn asunder from all this pain I fain would be set free. I know what I must do, yet fear I've not the strength to make it so. Oh, wilt thou help me? Kylo then reaches to hand Han his lightsaber. Han, of course, whatever thou wishest, my sweet boy. 
Thou bringest an heir did bring me such great joy. Kylo. Beyond the chamber dies the light outside, and toward the light within my very soul. This in my core doth darkness reign at last. And then Kylo turns on the lightsaber and plunges into his father. Now listen to what Han Solo said to his son, who was just mortally wounded by him. My son, whose face is still so dear to me, oh, how I see thy mother still in thee. Han Solo's tender love for his son cost him his life. Yet even after he was pierced by his own son, he said to him, my son, whose face is still dear to me. You see, that's our heavenly father. That's what our father is like. That even when we have wronged him, even when we have pierced him, he still loves us. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And that's how we are to begin our prayers. By turning to our father, by crying out to him, by looking to him and making it all about him. I hope you'll do that as you begin to pray this week. Make it about him and cry out to your father. Well, let's close our time in prayer. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, perhaps before I lead you in prayer, perhaps there are some of you out there listening and you have yet to make God your father. He loves you more than you will ever know. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son who was pierced on your behalf. Right now, why don't you say to him, dear God, be my father. I surrender my life to you. I believe Jesus died on a cross for my sins. I give you my life. Will you say that simple little prayer to him? he will be your father and you will be his child Heavenly Father thank you so much for this incredible amazing passage in which Jesus teaches us how to pray Lord I pray that in every way this series would begin to change us and how we look at prayer and how we look at you and we thank you for the amazing loving father that you are to us. And Father, I pray that you would draw us closer and closer to you. And I pray that you would help us to understand that when we pray, it's not about us, but it's about you. Father, thank you for your love for us, that even when we have strayed far away, you keep drawing us back. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for all the blessings that come with being your child. That even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. Even when our hearts are broken, you are with us. Even when we go through hard times, you are with us. And you'll never leave us. Thank you, Father, 
for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.